Hello, I'm Sam Amon, and this is the 15th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing Cathal Broda and Easter Rising. Before we talk about Cathal Broda, we must start with our 18 history segment. This is a 5 to 15 minute segment in which I highlight ways you can help make history. Two tragic things happened since last episode. First, a whistleblower came out and reported that ICE is forcefully sterilizing immigrant women. That, in case you didn't know, is a war crime and very reminiscent of the Nazi doctor Hirsch Schumann who, fer- who sterilized prisoners at Auschwitz. ICE is a criminal organization guilty of crimes against humanity and genocide. They must be dismantled and investigated, either by the U.S. government or by the international courts. Right now, we must call our senators and House representatives and demand they disband ICE and also support the Breathe Act, which would defund ICE, as well as the police, and establish a reparations program for people harmed by the police and criminal system. Second, Ruth Ginsburg is dead. She was an amazing woman, judge, and advocate for the American people and democracy. Her achievements will never be forgotten or matched anytime soon. And for a lot of people, she felt like the one vote between being dehumanized and being acknowledged as a human being. Now we face a massive fight to fill her seat. McConnell has already claimed he's going to fill her seat before the election. Remember that Bush was elected by the Supreme Court. Remember that ACA is going to the Supreme Court within the next few weeks. Remember that Roe versus Wade, Brown versus Board of Education, and all the various bills preventing voter intimidation have gone before and can be revisited by the Supreme Court. Remember that Florida has already reintroduced the poll tax, and that will most likely work its way up to the Supreme Court. Every major and moderate gain we've made as a society will be rolled back if McConnell pushes Trump's nominee through and Trump wins the election while retaining the Senate. Two things we must do. First, call your reps, all of them, especially the Republicans, and demand they refuse to fill her seat until after the election. The Republicans made a big stink about principles when they said they couldn't replace a judge so close to the election when Merrick Garland was nominated. Hold them to it. Call your reps, but especially target the ones in tight races. A few may want to commit political suicide for the fascist in chief, but let's test their commitment. Call your Democratic reps as well, and make sure they don't cave on this. Second, after you've called and emailed everyone, donate as much as you can to the Democrats, again focusing on those who are in tight races. We've already shattered Act Blue site's donation records, but let's keep donating if we can. If you can't donate, phone bank or text bank for them. Write postcards, get your friends and families to vote, volunteer as a poll worker or election judge, help register voters, do whatever you can and what your health situation permits to help us win this election. Early voting has already started in some states like Virginia, and I know that in Chicago, you can vote in the loop starting October 1st and then everywhere else starting October 14th. So make a plan, make sure your friends have a plan, make sure your family has a plan. I've seen a lot of opinions that if if McConnell pushes Trump's candidate through, then we can expand the courts but only if Biden wins and the Democrats control the House and Senate. I know people are raw and angry this election, and I know Biden wasn't anyone's first choice. He sure as hell wasn't mine, and I know he's made numerous decisions that helped get us to this point today, but we don't win this election. There's no turning back. Don't like Biden? You don't have to, but you have to vote, not just for the president, but for the Senate and the House and for all the local offices. That's the only way to enact progressive change. To learn how to engage, watch all the indivisible pages. They have a list of 15 Republican senators they want to replace called the Payback Project. 
They also launched an initiative on what to do should Trump refuse to step down, and an initiative on how to protect Ginsburg's Supreme Court seat. Right now, Indivisible Illinois 9 is phone banking for Lauren Underwood every Saturday, 2 to 12, and is phone banking to the underserved areas of Chicago every Sunday from 2 to 4. Um, but they're constantly throwing up events, so just watch their Facebook and Twitter pages. And now, on to Cathal Broda and Easter Rising. Cathal Broda was born on July 18, 1874, in Dublin, to a mixed Protestant and Catholic family. His father, Thomas, had been disinherited by his own family, marrying Marianne, Cathal's Catholic mother. He was the 10th child in a family of 14. His father ran an antiques and furniture business, which may, which may have been why Cathal himself would eventually work in the candle-making business when he wasn't leading a revolution against the British Empire. He would go to Belvedere College with the intention of studying medicine, but his father's business failure, combined with joining the Gaelic lead in 1890, put a halt to these plans. Cathal was a physically fit and active young man and joined the Gaelic lead through his athletic connections. The lead's goal was to preserve and promote Gaelic culture, which included Gaelic language and literature, as well as sports and dance. While it was meant to be a social club, it became a place for radicals and republicans to meet and share their thoughts and dreams about Irish independence. Because of his father's struggling business, Cathal had to leave school and join an English firm as a traveling salesman selling religious figures. While he traveled, he met other branches of the Gaelic lead and was becoming, a known, was becoming known as a popular guest speaker. He would eventually become leader of the Keating branch of the Gaelic lead. It is hard to track Cathal's political development, but he seems to have been on his way to full Gaelic immersion when he Gaelicized his name in 1908 and immediately stopped playing English sports. That same year, he also joined the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the IRB, a military oath-bound secret society dedicated to an Irish Republic. This would be right after Tom Clark returned to Ireland from America in 1907, so the IRB were in the midst of rebuilding themselves when Cathal joined. Around the same time, with the assistance of Sean Matiamara, Broda established an IRB circle in County Clare, rather interesting considering Broda's later almost obsessive distrust of the IRB. While becoming more and more radicalized, Broda established later Laylers Limited, a candle-making business in partnership with the Layler Brothers, a business Broda would be associated with his entire life, sometimes running the Department of Defense from its offices on the North Quays. Even though Broda never recorded his political development, as a businessman, he seemed to focus on Ireland's economic situation and believed that all English-owned businesses in Ireland should be replaced by Irish-owned businesses. Unless we find a treasure trove of papers hidden in someone's basement, revealing Broda's inner thought and political reflection, it doesn't seem that Broda was a politically sophisticated thinker. He demonstrated an ability to organize, recruit, and manage multiple projects at once, but I think at this point he's more of a fill-in-the-hole kind of guy. He'll step in when someone has to and do what is asked or what he thinks needs to be done, he doesn't take it further than that. However, I think he does become increasingly radicalized and he, he begins to embrace the need for a militant response to British rule, especially as he witnesses the home rule nonsense in 1912-1914 and Ulster's military response. This is best illustrated by his small role in the Howth gun running incident. While Ernest and Molly Childers and Mary Strain Rice were charged with smuggling in 900 Mauser rifles and 29,000 rounds of ammunition, Broder was commanding a group of 20 IRB operatives to assist their efforts. They moved the rifles from the yacht via taxis of a small group of volunteers marching with the rifles to show off their achievement. The British troops arrived and Broder rescued the situation, allowing the volunteers to flee without being injured or arrested. Unfortunately, the British fired on civilians, on civilians at Baxter's Walk later that evening, wounding three people and killing one person. 
Despite all that, the Howth gun smuggling was a huge success for the volunteers, and the British aggressive response was in stark contrast to their tolerant acceptance of the Ulster volunteers and their gun smuggling. Frodo was not part of the planning for Easter Rising, but he was heavily involved in moving guns and ammunitions all over the country while traveling for business. He was second in command at South Dublin Union and fought alongside Eamon Sient, one of the planners of the Rising and signers of the Proclamation of Independence. The Union was the country's biggest poorhouse and contained its own church, store, and two hospitals. Only 120 out of the 700 expected volunteers reported for duty that day because of McNeil's counter-order. They spent most of Monday morning fortifying their position and engaged in a deadly firefight with British troops from the Richmond barracks throughout the day. The Union did not see much, much action during Tuesday and Wednesday. All hell broke loose that Thursday. Thursday morning began with Siet and Broda assessing their defenses. At 3.30pm, the British battered HQ with machine gun fire and attempted to storm in. Siet held the door while Broda stood on the, on the second floor and fired down upon British troops. The British broke in by tumbling through the walls and close quarter fighting followed. The volunteers retreated and Broda was cut off from his men. As he tried to reach the first floor and escape, he was caught by an exploding British grenade. Severely wounded and seemingly alone, Broda taunted the British. Come on, you cowards, till I get one shot before I die. I'm only a wounded man. Amen, amen, come here and sing God Save Ireland Before I Die. Sient led a rescue mission and found Broda sitting on the ground, his revolver out and loaded, waiting for the British. He was carried into the back room, and even though the volunteers tried to treat his many wounds, they thought he was a goner. Sient himself reported that Broda had 25 wounds in total, 5 dangerous, 9 serious, and 11 slight. Because of the British attack, Broder would not get proper medical care until Friday morning, when he was escorted to Dublin Castle by British soldiers. While his comrades were taken to jail and or executed, Broder recuperated in the hospital. The British doctors confident he would succumb to his wounds, so there was no need to follow up on the arrest warrant out for him. Broder was transferred from Richmond Hospital to George V Hospital and remained there throughout the summer of 1916. Since he never went to jail and was stuck in a hospital bed, he, along with others like Kathleen Clark, spent his time laying the groundwork for the resurgence of the Irish volunteers. He would never fully recover from his injuries, carrying the limp for the rest of his life, as well as pieces of British shrapnel inside his body. On August 23rd, he was released. After he was released, he left the IRB, seemingly believing that, they, that the new phase in Irish rebellion did not require a secret organization. He once explained to another volunteer that the IRB was no longer necessary, we have now an open military organization in the volunteers, and there's, there's no necessity for a secret one. If it continues to exist, it will only create trouble and do harm, because it will be a case of too many coats spoiling the broth. It almost seems like Broda learned about the IRB's extensive efforts to keep their plans for Easter Rising to themselves and cut out McNeil and Hobson until the last minute, which of course prompted the counter-order that confused things, and decided secrets were no way to run a revolution. Again, we don't have any of his papers chronicling his thoughts, but to me it sounds like he did not agree with how the IRB handled and planning for the Rising, and since Ireland was now in open warfare, it made more sense to him to keep everything in the open. Broder wasn't the only person to ever revote their IRB membership. De Valera, who never wanted to join and only did so to take part in Easter Rising, Sean T. O'Kelly, and Desmond Fitzgerald also left the Brotherhood around the same time. Of course, this was also around the same time that Collins was, re was building a core cadre of men he would later use to rebuild the IRB and the military core of the IRA. Broder's later difficulties with many members of the IRA and the Dáil may have stemmed from the fact that he missed the jail experience. A lot of close relationships and clits were formed in jail that Broder simply wasn't part of, and he must have felt some of that isolation. 
Additionally, he spent most of 1916 recovering from severe wounds in an uneasy and uncertain time. One can only guess at the psychological effect the extensive wounds had on Broca, combined with the pressure of rebuilding a revolutionary moment so quickly after the leaders of the last uprising were killed. It was with this mindset that he welcomed the released prisoners and focused on rebuilding the volunteers. He mostly stayed out of the Sinn Féin efforts across the IPP, the Irish Parliamentary Party, during the upcoming election. Broda's approach to reorganizing was to reach out to local commanders and encourage them to recruit members from their own community. Most likely because he was still recovering from his wounds, we do not see Broda cycling throughout the country like Mulcahy or Collins did, but Broda cannot be dismissed either. He seems to have helped keep the Irish cause alive while the others were in jail and provided a solid and firm leadership when needed. De Valera seems to have been key in getting Broda politically involved. As 1917 progressed, Broda was seen making more speeches, was actually arrested in June for speaking at a protest, the only time he would ever be arrested and sent to jail, and was heavily involved with the Sinn Féin convention in October 1917. During the convention, de Valera was named president of Sinn Féin, but Sinn Féin was facing a problem of reconciling its Republicans with those who still support a dual monarch, the brainchild of Sinn Féin founder Arthur Griffith. A compromise was reached that said Sinn Féin's goal was to strive towards a republic, and once that had been achieved, they would let the people choose what form of government they wanted. Apparently, this compromise was conceived by de Valera at Broda's house before the convention, and Broda may have had a hand in drafting it. He certainly seemed to believe that Griffith would have to agree with the compromise or risk being kicked out of the Republican movement. During the convention, they discussed the use of excessive force against British troops, and at this stage, Broda said they would not meet British assassination with assassination. Again, interesting considering his future plans to assassinate members of the British cabinet. The following day, the Irish Volunteers held their own convention, where de Valera was elected president of the Volunteers, and Broder was appointed chairman of the resident executive. He was also a member of the Sinn Féin executive. He may also have been appointed chief of staff at this point, with Mulcahy as his assistant chief of staff, but this early in the formation of the IRA, those roles could have been used interchangeably. It was not until 1919 when their roles would be formalized, with Broder as minister of defense and Mulcahy as chief of staff. In 1918, the British were considering implementing conscription in Ireland. As can be expected, this went over spectacularly, with Sinn Féin using the crisis to catapult themselves into being a dominant political party as opposed to a fringe group. Broder had his own plan on how to respond. In March 1918, Broder called a meeting of the volunteer executive, which consisted of 20 men, including Broder, Collins, and Mulcahy, to meet and discuss plans to assassinate members of the British government as well as hostile newspaper editors. We're going to briefly discuss the plan in this episode, but if you want a deep dive, please check out Irish Nation Lives episode on the attempted assassinations. It's a fascinating one. Broda wanted to personally lead the assassinations. There's some controversy over whether this was Broda being Broda or if it truly had the support of the executive. Mulcahy himself would distance himself and Collins from this incident in his own papers, even though he helped Broda interview potential assassins and had to have been involved in the planning. Yet there's some sense as well that Broda was going to go forward with the plan anyway, and the executive needed to work and protect one of their own, especially this early in the revolution. As we've discussed in other episodes, it's not like the IRA were against assassinations in general, and if this plan was successful, it could be a great victory, or it could lead to a disaster. I think it may be fair to say feelings were mixed about the plan, but like a lot of things IRA-related, it was something that got a life of its own. Broder and Mulcahy interviewed a handful of men, provided them with explicit instructions, money, and passports, and sent them to London, where Broder would meet them. Broder and his group of assassins arrived in London in May. They all had their own safe houses and had infrequent meetings to plan their attacks. During one of these meetings, Broder gave everyone a colored bead, symbolizing who their target was. 
He also provided them with photos of their assigned ministers, weapons, and orders to study their targets. They would not kill their targets until a conscription was passed, but Broda and many of his assassins tailed their targets and mentally practiced killing them while they waited for the proper moment. Conscription was never passed, so eventually Broda and his group returned to Ireland without having to kill anyone, but it was a plan he would return to at least two other times during the IRA's war against the British. After returning from London, Broda helped campaign for Sinn Féin, even running for and winning a seat West Waterford. Broda managed to evade arrest during the German plot, which nabbed men like De Valera and he, Collins, Bolin, and Mulcahy took over planning for the first meeting of the Doll. Broda, with help from Piria's Baisley was instrumental in ensuring that meeting went smoothly. The doll met on January 21st, 1919 with Broder as chairman. He spoke the entire time in Gaelic except for one time, telling the 27 TDs in attendance not to cheer or clap. It was to be a solemn moment marking Ireland's first independent body of government in hundreds of years. The meeting lasted for two hours in which they read the Declaration of Independence and passed a constitution, a democratic program, and created a ministry of the doll Irene which would consist of a president and five secretaries leading governmental departments. The second meeting of the Dáil met in April, with de Valera presiding now that he was out of jail. De Valera replaced the first ministry of one of his own, formerly making Broda the Minister of Defense, a position he would hold throughout the War of the British he would use to help plan IRA strategy while also bringing the IRA formerly under the control of the civilian government, the Dáil. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us. You can find our full catalog on our website, www.samswarroom.com, as well as Spotify and iTunes. Please consider making a contribution to our Kofi and follow us on Twitter at AOASIMASYMWarfare and Instagram. Until next time, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and stay safe.